Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 12. Acts, chapter 12. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 920. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. So, Acts 12, starting verse 1. And then reading most of the chapter, but not all of it. As Christians, we live, in a sense, between two worlds. One is, a, is temporary and coming to an end. The other is eternal, though it is still taking shape. The landscape of the world has changed dramatically since the time when Jesus walked on the earth. Empires and nations have risen and they have fallen. The powers thought to once, once thought to be unstoppable and unshakable were undone in a night. The breaking news of the last few weeks, I think, has reminded us, really, of the instability of the world around us. It's, it's in times like these, really, that I think it's good to be reminded that as believers, our hope remains in a kingdom that will never be shaken because it is built on the rock of Christ. Augustine of Hippo uh, is... How many of you are familiar with Augustine of Hippo? Oh, man, all right. You need to know about Augustine. Augustine was a pastor who lived between 354 and 430 A.D. He was a remarkable man who is regarded as one of the most influential figures in the history of the church. He played a very key role in defending the church against Pelagianism, which is a, a heresy denying the doctrine of original sin. And his writings played a really key role many years later in influencing leaders of the Reformation, men like John Calvin. Now, Augustine knew the importance of living for the world to come. In 410, uh, Rome was sacked. I don't know if you know this. Rome actually fell to the Goths in the north. And when Rome fell, it absolutely shook the Roman Empire in its confidence to its core. It changed the trajectory of everything. Augustine was living during that time, and as such, he found himself not only caring for refugees, but also having to engage in the criticisms and the backlash that was coming from pagan thinkers who were arguing that the whole reason Rome had fallen was because it had left its pagan roots in favor of Christianity. In response, Augustine wrote one of his most famous works called The City of God, in which he showed how these critiques from these pagans were unfounded and really self-refuting. He demonstrates in his work that the fall of Rome could actually be traced to the fallenness of man's own moral nature for which Christ is the only solution. Rome may have officially adopted Christianity at that time as its state religion, but it was far from a Christian empire. Citing the moral corruption, the lack of justice that was there, Augustine argued that it really was no surprise that Rome had fallen into the hands of the barbarians. Now, Augustine may have written that work in the 400s, but his arguments are really quite profound and surprisingly relevant for Christians today. In particular, I think that Augustine is helpful for Christians as we think about how we're supposed to live as citizens of heaven, what he calls the city of God, in the context of the city of man, this current fallen world. Taking us through the scriptures, Augustine calls believers to consider that while we do have responsibilities in the world we live in here and now, 
we live here really as resident aliens whose true home is the fellowship and the presence of God himself. So accordingly, Augustine argues that Christians are able to live through the rise and the fall of any earthly government safe and secure in the eternal lordship of God. The current political and cultural climate that we live in has caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of consternation in the church as of late. In times like these, it's good to be reminded about God's sovereignty. There is no government, there is no ruler, no body of officials that is able to overthrow the purpose and the plan of God. And to settle our hearts and our minds in this truth, the book of Acts records for us how God triumphed over the efforts of one king in particular. And that's what we're looking at today. So if you would, please stand with me as I read Acts chapter 12, starting with verse 1 and reading through verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to be kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. The book of Acts is intended to give us an authoritative, thorough account of the birth of the early church. But as we have seen in our time studying this book so far, the point of this book is so much more than just meaning to record history. It really is the continuation of what we read in the Gospels, the record of how King Jesus is continuing to build and expand his kingdom into all the earth. The book of Acts is rich with doctrine and theology, showing us the power of the Gospel and the reality of the reign and the rule of Jesus, even as he wields his authority and accomplishes his perfect purposes. The focus of Acts 12, then is really on the triumph of God over the enemies of his people. The main purpose of this text is to teach God's people to trust in that triumph. It's connected to what we looked at last week, really, as God prepared and provided for his people, through his people, overcoming the threat of a great and terrible famine that was coming. In Acts chapter 12, we find God providing for his people, triumphing over another threat, this one political, a king named Herod, who took violent actions against the church in an effort to make political gains for himself. But for all Herod's rage, his actions against the church only led to his own destruction. Just as God defined the boundaries of the ocean when he made the earth, saying, This far you shall come and no further, so God also showed his sovereign power over Herod, so that the word of the gospel continued to grow and bear fruit, and the name of, the Christ, was, uh, the name of Christ was glorified. What was true then of the authority of Christ is true now. And so... This morning, my prayer really is that God will use this passage to strengthen our faith in his supreme power over the affairs of man. I I pray really that as we see God's authority, as we see his triumph over this tyrannical, wicked king, that we will be better equipped to live as citizens of the city of God, even as we reside for a time as ambassadors in the city of man. So the main idea... Very simple this morning is this. Trust in God's triumph. Trust in God's triumph. Now, as we trust in God's triumph, we see in this passage how we, how God drives his people to pray. So, this morning our first point will be to look really at the prayers of the saints. Second, as we 
trust in God's triumph, we are made to see, really, the limitations of man are nothing compared to the power of God. So in our second point, I want to bring to light God's surpassing power, his greater glory and power. And then third, as we trust in God's triumph, I want you to see that we are able to relish the glory of God and how it goes to God and God alone. So, with that, let's get into our passage. Let's begin first by looking at how this look at God's triumph really is meant to drive God's people to pray. Now, Luke tells us, at about the same time when the church in Antioch had sent Barnabas and Saul to Judea, remember they were up north in Antioch, when they sent them to Judea, with the, this relief package, Luke says that about that same time, a persecu- that persecution in Jerusalem was starting to get worse. Up until this point, most of the pressure that was being put on the church was coming from the Jewish leadership. Uh, it really, in order to pacify the Jews, the Romans had granted a certain amount of authority to a, a, bo- a governing body called the Sanhedrin that was made of a council of two parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're should be familiar with them from the Gospels, and they were given authority to deal with matters pertaining to the Jewish religion. But now we see that pressure is starting to come on the church from another direction. In verse 1, Luke tells us that Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, there's a couple different Herods in the Bible. This one is Herod uh, Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. Although he was ethnically Jewish, Herod really was the embodiment of a Roman. Uh, The Jewish people hated Herod's family, and for good reason. They had sold Israel out to the Romans. They really were the enforcers of Roman policy. And Agrippa knew this. So when he came to power, he knew how unpopular his family was. And in his rule, he actually took every step he could to try and win affection back from the Jewish people even as he was trying to hold on to the favor of Rome. He was really a pragmatist who was quick to seize any political advantage he could. While in Jerusalem, uh, some of the reports we have, he would play the part of a very observant Jew. But he had a reputation back in Rome for being a true cosmopolitan. Uh, the The fact is that Agrippa, Agrippa's God, was himself. And he worked any connection he could, whether it was with the imperial family or with the the Jewish leadership, to try and build to his own advantage. Herod's persecution of the church, then, really doesn't seem to have been driven by any sense of religious conviction so much as it it was driven by political ambition. Luke tells us that James, the brother of John, um was one of the believers which Herod then had taken into custody. And he tells us that while he had taken James into custody, he had him executed with a sword. And then seeing how pleased the Jewish leaders were with what he had done, he proceeded to arrest Peter as as well, intending to do the same thing to him. Herod's actions against the church were cold and they were calculated. Uh, James was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was one of the three apostles who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and seen him in his glory. He was not the first 
uh, of the believers to be killed for the sake of Christ, but he was the first of the apostles to give his life for the gospel. Now Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about his death. He simply informs us about it. And he doesn't exactly describe the impact that his death had on the church. But I think we can understand that this was a massive blow. And I, I can't imagine how the church must have felt on top of that when they heard the news that Peter had also been arrested in the same way. Uh, you can imagine how difficult it is to lose someone who's in that position of leadership, who, who you have learned so much from, but then to lose another, that would have been truly difficult. Now Luke tells us that Peter's arrest happened to take place during the days of the unleavened bread, which is the week leading up to Passover. Herod planned to make a spectacle of Peter after the festival was over. So he held Peter in custody, putting him in prison under the charge of four squads of soldiers until then. Now Luke gives us the number of guards mostly to show us how intent Herod was on carrying through with killing Peter. This, this was not just an afterthought. This was purposeful. Uh, what he, Luke describes here, this is actually pretty standard Roman practice for, for keeping watch over important prisoners. It allowed the prisoner to be kept guard in shifts so that there, were all, there was always someone with them. In fact, when Luke describes how Peter was being kept, we can see just how difficult Herod had made uh, made it for Peter to escape. Uh, he tells us that he was bound in two chains and that he was between two soldiers with layers of sentries standing guard at the door. So clearly, Herod had taken every precaution he could to make sure he was not going to lose his prize. Peter was an ends to a means, a way for Herod to present himself as a defender of the faith in the eyes of the Jewish leaders while continuing to maintain the favor of Rome. Peter, by his circumstances, was basically a dead man. You have to wonder, as you hear Luke describe this, what it must have been like for Peter to have been here in this prison. Peter had just lost one of his best friends to the sword of a wicked man. And as far as he could see, he was next. Can, can you imagine the anxiety, the, the anger, the grief, the sense of loss, the, the fear that would grip your heart if you were in that position? What, what would you have felt if you were there in Peter's chains as you spent Passover, locked between two soldiers waiting for your own death? I have to believe that Peter spent a lot of time in prayer then, thinking over everything that he had heard Jesus say and do. Even more so, though, I think that Peter's thoughts must have really especially been on Jesus' own suffering and death and also on his resurrection. It's, it's impossible to notice the connection here between Peter's situation and Jesus' own suffering and death. Jesus was crucified the day leading up to Passover, and he rose from the dead on the day after. Peter is almost, we almost can see Peter is here in the same footsteps as his Lord had suffered. As Passover came and went, I have to think that this is what brought Peter calm and comfort. Though his death was inevitable, it seemed, it was not something that Peter had to fear because Peter had seen Jesus after he had conquered the grave. Peter could 
sit there in the darkness of this prison and grieve his friend, yet without despairing. And he can entrust himself to the plan and the will of God, knowing that his death would not be the end for him. Herod might have been permitted to have taken James' life. He may have been in a position to take Peter's life. But for all he could do, he could never really harm him. While Peter sat in prison with all this mulling over in his mind, Luke tells us something was happening. The church was praying for him. More specifically in verse 5, he describes that the church was praying earnestly to God for him. Now before we move on, there is just something here about the way that Luke has written this that needs you see to stop and savor. This is not just Herod versus the church. This is not just Luke telling us about something that happened. This is Luke showing us that there's a, almost a cosmic struggle here where Herod is trying to take on God. This is Herod versus God. Who's going to win? Well, we've already read this passage, so we already know Herod is about to get wrecked in the most spectacular fashion you can ask for. But if we were reading this for the first time, if, if we read this in that spirit, you could feel the tension building. Who's going to win? What is God going to do? The church is praying. Is Herod going to be too powerful? The issue here is this. Herod has done everything in his kingly power to assault the name of Christ and his people. The church, on the other hand, in their weakness, went to God. Their suffering drove them to prayer. And not just any prayer, earnest prayer. Bold prayer, the kind of prayer that pours out of the heart of a mom or dad when they see their child suffering. The kind of prayer that you pray when you are at the end of yourself. The kind of prayer that flowed from the heart of Jesus when he was in the garden. It was a cry to God for Peter, a prayer that flowed out of the pain of having lost one brother and did not wish to lose another. It was a prayer for God to triumph over the will of a tyrant. The scriptures teach us to pray always, to live in a state of prayerfulness to, to God. Prayer really is meant to be a constant, and yet from Luke's description, it seems that this situation pressed the church to pray in a special way. In the face of danger, God's people prayed with a special sort of urgency for Peter. And what they said in their prayers, Luke doesn't record. I think he wouldn't have enough space to record that. And yet, the content of their prayer is really not what Luke's trying to point out to us so much as it is that Luke is telling us about how the church prayed and how the church responded to this hopeless situation. Luke intends for us to see a real-world example of how God answered and provided for the needs of his people when they came to him and asked him to intervene. Luke intends for us to really, I think, to learn something about what prayer is and about what the purpose of why God has given it to us in the first place is. If God's word, if the scriptures really are the breath that the Spirit of God fills us with to fuel our faith, then Prayer is when we breathe those promises back to God. If God's word is what we breathe in, prayer is when we breathe out. It is essential and necessary for our lives. It is an action that we take in response to what God has said about himself. Psalm 10 verse 17 says, 
O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Building on the way that Jesus teaches his people to pray, prayer has been described, I think, helpfully as when it is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We're told in Hebrews 7, verse 25, that Jesus, as our high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When we come to God in prayer, we are not coming to him trying to bend or force him to our will. We are not coming to him to try and manipulate him to do what we want him to do. When we come to prayer, we are submitting ourselves to the will of God, trusting in his kingly power and his will to intervene. We are recognizing that everything in our lives is a good gift of his grace, and we are submitting ourselves to him. God does not need you to pray in order to work. He he is not waiting. Oh, if they would only pray, then I'd be able to do something. No, he has appointed prayer for something else. He, He has appointed prayer to be a means through which he works because he delights in using the prayers of his people. He does this because it brings glory to the name of Jesus in whose name we are commanded to pray. He does this because prayer also has a certain effect on us to strengthen our faith, to grow us in maturity up into Christ. He does this really because he delights in the prayers of his people even as he delights in our worship. It shouldn't really surprise us, I think, that the church prayed when Herod's hammer came down on them. But I do think it should encourage us to see prayer for the vital thing that it is. A prayer for whatever reason can feel to us almost like being passive. Maybe it, it, it's, it's the, it feels that way really because we take it for granted or because when people say, oh, I'm praying for you, they really just mean, oh, I'm sending some feels your way. I hope you stop hurting. But when we look at the way the church prayed here, the way it committed itself to praying for someone else, I think we can see very clearly that prayer is far from passive. It's coming before our Heavenly Father in the name of His beloved Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is, it is trusting Him to act. That is what prayer is. That's why it's so vital that we, as a church, commit ourselves to this work as well. When we pray, we are entrusting ourselves to God's greater power. And that brings us to our second point this morning. God heard the prayers of his people. In extraordinary fashion, Luke tells us how God rescued Peter by the hand of his angel. He tells us that on the night before Herod intended to bring Peter out, Peter was there in his place. He was sleeping in chains between two guards who were assigned to him. Now, just hold on right there for just a second. Does it strike anyone that Peter was sleeping? The, the night before, he's about to die. 
I, if I was on death row and my execution was about to take place, I don't think I'd be able to sleep. But Peter was. And that just tells you something. It tells you something about Peter's faith. He had reason to fear, but he wasn't afraid. His fear did not control him. He wasn't there wishing he had lived his life a different way. He wasn't there clinging to every second, trying to will the second hand to slow down. He was at rest, safe and secure in the promise of his risen Lord. This, this was a divine gift. As Psalm 127 too says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep. In verse 7, Peter tells us that while Peter slept, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. A glorious light filled the cell. But Peter's sleep was so deep so comfortable he didn't even stir in fact it wasn't until the angel hit him that he finally woke up even when he wakes up we're told the angel actually the angel has to walk him through the steps of getting ready peter peter get up get get up now get up quickly we must be going get dressed put on your sandals no 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 the other foot man how long have you been doing this all right, now, now put on your cloak. We are going out. Follow me. Now, Peter followed the instructions of the angel. The chains that were formerly binding him, his hands to his, the, the guards, fell from him as if cut with a hot sword. The guards, for their own part, were told, did not stir or even seem to notice. A groggy as Peter was, he, he thought he had to be having some sort of dream or vision. But it wasn't a dream. It was really happening. As he and the angel went out of the cell, they passed the first and the second guard until they came to the iron gate that led out to the city. As it came to life, Luke tells us that the gate swung open on its own, and they went out and went along the street, after which the angel left Peter. In the cool night air, Peter finally began to come to himself. Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting, he said. God heard the prayers of his people and he had answered them in an amazing way. Now with his freedom restored, we see that Peter's first thought was not to get out of Dodge. It was actually to go to, to the church. In particular, Luke says, He headed to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered together praying for him. Now, having just talked about the importance of prayer, I do think it's worth noticing that the church had gathered to pray together, despite the danger. That, that sets something. Because Herod now is after them. And they were running a risk by coming together. They could have stayed home. They could have prayed in the relative safety of their own homes. But the Spirit had brought them together in one heart, with one mind, to pray for Peter. And that's not a small thing. When God moves in His people to pray, it's because He's doing something amazing. The church, what we see here, is the church being the church together. It is a good, wonderful thing when God brings His people together to pray. And we should expect 
great things to happen when that ha- when that occurs. Jesus tells us that when two or three are gathered in his name together, he is there with them. And we see that in a powerful way here. Brothers and sisters, God means for us to pray together. Not to the exclusion of praying when we are apart. Not to the exclusion of your own private prayer lives. But God does do something special in his people when they come together in corporate prayer. When you hear your brother or your sister praying for your needs, taking time out of their day, Because their love for Christ has given them a love for you. And they just spend, they can think of no better way than to spend those moments than interceding for you in the Spirit of Christ. When we get to see how God answers those prayers and how He works through them, we get to rejoice. And this is something that has been going on since the church was first founded. God means for us to pray together. Don't sleep on the opportunity to pray with your fellow disciples. When we pray together, we get to rejoice together. We get to encourage one another. We get to experience the glory of Christ in a special way, just as we see these believers got to experience. Now, Luke tells us that having come to the house, Peter knocked at the door. Enter sweet Rhoda. Oh, Rhoda, Rhoda is great. Rhoda was a servant girl who served in Mary's house. Now, knowing that Herod was on a tear, I have to wonder if she had a little bit of fear, maybe, as she went to the entrance to see who could possibly be at the door at this hour. If she did have some fear, it didn't last long, because she heard Peter at the gate, and she recognized his voice calling out of the darkness. And like any reasonable person, she absolutely lost her mind. Uh, you you gotta, gotta laugh here because I've seen, I've never done this myself, but I, I have seen videos of people who were so excited they slammed the door in their loved one's face. Uh, and that's almost what happens here. In her excitement to tell everyone that Peter is not in prison, but at the door, uh, she actually forgot to open the gate. You can imagine what it must have been. Hey, hey everyone, stop, listen, Peter is here. Oh, come off it, Rhoda. Peter is in prison. We are praying for him. Please have some respect. He's about to die. No, no, no. He is here. Rhoda, you are crazy. How could he be here? Herod took him last week. It must be his angel. As fervently as the church was praying for Peter, it is a little disconcerting that they were so slow to believe that God had gone and done more than they ever thought possible. Yet at the same time, we shouldn't be too critical of them here. Because this really is an incredible answer to their prayers in a way that really, I think, defied their expectations. Uh, When they did finally open the gate, only to see, in fact, it was Peter, they were all astonished. How could this be? You can imagine the chaos and the questions. But Peter, Luke says, motioned for all of them to with his hand to be silent, and then he described for them in detail what the Lord had done, how he had brought him out of the prison. And telling them to take this news to James, which is, uh, I believe, uh, reference to Jesus' brother, and the other disciples, he left and went to another place. God answered the prayers of his people in the most amazing way. Peter, when he was being rescued, thought he wasn't a dream. The church initially couldn't believe that it was really him. Herod had done everything he could to get in the way of the gospel. He had used and abused his authority to hurt the innocent. 
He had opposed God, but for all his efforts, he had lost. The point I want you to take from this miraculous display of God's power is simply this. Whatever circumstances we face, we are never beyond God's power. God heard the prayers of his people, and he answered them. And he answered them in such a way that it was abundantly clear only he could do this. He let Herod do the worst he could. And then he smashed him. Herod and the Jews really should have taken notice, you would think. They should have realized, hey, maybe there is something to this message. Maybe we're actually opposing God. But they didn't. They continued on in their blind pursuit of self-glory, and we see that it destroyed them in the end. Friends, when, when when the future looks bleak, we do not have to fear. We are not always assured that we will be delivered out of the danger we fear. But we have to understand, we serve a God whose hand is never too short, whose strength is never too taxed, whose love never runs out. God doesn't always save us from the trial. After all, James did die for the gospel that he preached. And Peter, years later, was killed as well. But what we see here is that God does answer the prayers of his people. He has a purpose that is greater than what we can see from our own perspective. And when we submit ourselves to him by faith in the name of Christ, we can trust that he will see us through, even if that means wrapping up our time and service here on earth and bringing us into the glory of his presence. So be of good courage and trust in the triumph of our Lord. And that brings us to our third point this morning. God gets the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Now things didn't end in Jerusalem for Herod. Part of me would have liked for Herod to have been struck down as soon as he laid hands on James. But that not, is not what God had in plan. God, uh, Luke says that when the day had come, Uh, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. He had vanished without a trace. The, The chains were there, the guards were there, the gates were there, but Peter was not. And even though Herod and his forces searched for Peter with all they had, they couldn't find him. So, in true Roman fashion, Luke tells us that having questioned the guards, Herod ordered that they be put to death, and then he went down from Jerusalem to sulk in Caesarea. Herod lost his moment of glory. He was embarrassed and he was frighteningly angry. He may have wanted to be perceived as a true Jew, but in truth he was really a self-seeking, bloodthirsty, wicked tyrant, always willing to shed innocent blood in the pursuit of his own glory. He is the exact embodiment of Proverbs 29.2 when it says that when the wicked rule, the people groan. Herod's rule brought death. And yet God still had a purpose for him. God raised Herod up. God gave Herod authority. We can think of the words that Jesus said to Pilate when Pilate questioned him, trying to get a response that said, do you not know I have authority to let you go or to kill you? And Jesus responded to him, you would not have any authority if it had not been given to you by my father first. Herod had authority, and yet he abused that, and it proved lethal to him in the end. In verse 20, Luke tells us how Herod 
had become angry also with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now these are cities to the north of Herod's domain. They weren't actually under his kingship, but they did depend on him for food. And he had found a way to stick it to them. Luke doesn't attribute the need of Tyre and Sidon directly to the famine that Agabus had predicted, but we can see a clear connection uh, of those two things, and we can see a clear difference in the way that God provided for the needs of his church and the way that Herod, this wicked king, used his authority to create need and hardship for others. The need in Tyre and Sidon was so great that we were told they sent a delegation to Herod and having persuaded Blastus, who was the king's personal attendant, they, they asked for peace. Their people were starving and dying. They were at his mercy and they were willing to do anything and to say anything to get relief. In verse 21, Luke tells us that on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat on his throne where he began to give a speech. Now, these robes are something else. Uh, Josephus, a, a historian from that time period, actually goes into some detail about these robes. They, they were extraordinary enough that he thought he should write about them. Uh, he says that they were actually made out of silver, and they were made in such a way that they glittered when the light of the sun struck them. So, clearly, as Herod puts on these royal robes, he is seeking to stoke his ego here. And we see that the delegation from Tyre and Sidon were more than willing to do anything they could to help their people. So as Herod spoke, the people in the audience began to cry out, This is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a god. <laughs> Herod liked the sound of that. After all, that's how people regarded Caesar too. So he did nothing to stop or rebuke the people. Rather, he soaked the glory in. He basked in it, and he let those shiny clothes shine on. That was a final straw. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. He may have been a king, but he was not a god. He was nothing more than a wicked man. From dust he came, and to dust he returned. His sin consumed him, and it brought forth the fruit that it always brings, death. Luke stresses the immediacy of how this angel struck Herod down. Uh, some of the other accounts that we have tell us that although Herod was in fact struck immediately in his own, it stopped him from talking in excruciating pain, he actually died in agony five days later. From Luke's explanation, the thought really is that he died of intestinal roundworms. It is an awful way to go. And yet, I think we can all agree that Herod died as he lived, cruelly. He looked good on the outside. People called him a god. But in reality, he was rotting on the inside. And his quest to glorify himself ended with him being consumed by his sin. It's impossible not to look at Herod, what happened to Herod, and not to think about what Jesus describes when he describes hell and what come the judgment that comes on those who will not repent, where he says their agony, their flame does not die, and their worm does not is not taken away. <clears throat> Meanwhile, verse twenty four, this really brings everything together, right? We had the this almost like two boxers, right? 
David versus God. Who will win? And now we get here in verse 24 and we see Luke tells us that the word of God, while Herod died and rotted, the word of God increased and it multiplied. God triumphed over the tyrant. He defended his glory. He defended his people. Hebrews 10, 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Likewise, the Apostle Peter tells us in his letter, sorry, the Apostle Peter tells us in his letter that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As I look at the life of Herod, I can't help but think about what God said to Pharaoh in Exodus 9.16. For this purpose I have raised you up. I raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The kings and the rulers, the governors of the earth, they can boast about their power and their authority. They can march their troops in the street. They can fly their planes in the air. They can rattle their sabers all they want, but they can do nothing apart from the will of God. Their authority is not their own. And one day their glory will pass away. But the glory of God will always remain. His purposes will always come to pass. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us knowing that we are safe and secure in the hands of our loving God. It leaves us safe and secure knowing that even if God, our shepherd, should lead us into the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear evil because he is with us. Whatever trials we face, they have a purpose. They will not be wasted. And the world will know the glory of King Jesus. As we're told in Philippians 2, every knee, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is trustworthy and this is true. As citizens of the city of God, we live with one faith in one Savior with one delight, the glory of our risen King. With that in mind, may God give us grace to endure as we live in the victory of King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you have said in your word what will and what will not be. You have described for us the times that are to come. And the message that resounds from your word every time is that you are on your throne. You are accomplishing that which you have set forth. Not one word you have sent forth will return to you void, but it will bear fruit. And we have seen that in our own lives. Father, we have heard the gospel. We have believed it. We have tasted and seen that you are good. You have given us the evidence of your love in Christ, who has redeemed us through his own sacrifice who has rescued us from sin, who has cleansed not just us from a legal declaration, but who has cleansed our own conscience so that even if our conscience does condemn us, we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ the righteous, so that when you, Father, look on those who are in your Son, you do not see our sin, you see His righteousness. 
and having been clothed in his white robes, we know that when you look at us on that day of judgment, you will point at us, you will say, innocent. Father, thank you for the power of the blood of Christ that makes it so. And Father, give us strength to hold fast to that confession. Because without your glory, without your spirit, without your intervening grace, we do not have the strength to do that ourselves. And so, Father, we pray that as we cling to this, you will hold us fast. And I pray, Father, that in the coming week, no matter what happens, we will live as citizens of your city in your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.